HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. For our season year-end finale, we welcome back to the show Bill Addison, restaurant critic for the LA Times, and we chat about the year that was 2023. We talk about the stories that the local culinary scene shared, what new restaurants had to offer, and we chat about the 101 Best Restaurant list. That comes out annually and just came out a few weeks ago. It's a great conversation. We talk about how incredible neighborhood restaurants are, and we're lucky to have them on the show. And then we dive deep into the archives for a performance from Nadia Sorota, a one-woman contemporary classical commissioning machine. That's Pitchfork Words, who sing her praises, and so do we, on this incredible live performance that we absolutely wanted to end the year with. Thank you to everyone who supported, to all the guests who stopped by, all the musicians, all the publicists, and everyone at HRN who made this year possible. Have a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2024. But for the meantime, please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Always good to sit down with you. It's it's my pleasure to to have you on the show to talk about the year that was LA dining and food. Thanks for having me back, Darren. Good to be with you. So looking back on the last year, how would you sign up the LA dining scene? 
always evolving. Sure. Uh, always, you know. Um, I think I think it was a tough year for restaurants mm. because of these uh, strikes, because of the dual strikes, and oh, yeah. they were already coming out of a tough place from the devastation of the pandemic mm-hmm. and particularly mm-hmm. the labor force. And there was so much talk in 2020, 2021 about rethinking what restaurant culture is and how to support the workers and the chefs better. And I'm not sure we're there yet. Well, I think to your point, you know, this was the first year where we didn't have a large shutdown from COVID. And at, this, again, is only really relevant to LA scene, but so many restaurateurs that I talk to, how's it going? It's slow. It's the strikes. Yeah, slow. And, you know, to make those significant changes, you need those resources. Um, but you also... And it was always... Of, yeah. Yeah, it was oh, always interesting to me, too, I was going to say, because I certainly saw that, but I think, you know... To, just to speak directly about it, the class divisions are always interesting to me. You know, the the fancy West Side restaurants can still be booked out three months in advance. Yeah. Um, it's just a case-by-case basis. But a lot of the community restaurants were definitely places where I saw dining rooms not as full as I would hope that they would be. With complete understanding, of course, because people's livelihoods are on hold. Yes, but um, and you mentioned about these new spots that are redefining what restaurants could be and, and what they look like. And I think those restaurants that maybe open this year with the fresh start and a knowledge of like what it could be had a better footing than some of these restaurants. What did you see as some of these? less traditional, but still considered restaurants that open that spoke to you? I mean, I feel like that question can be answered on some, some different levels. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I thought, I think kind of with all this, when we're talking about new restaurants, that there's a lot of, worry about what will appeal to diners, what will bring people Mm, into mm -hmm. the restaurants. And that's always a tricky paradox because while I understand the need to be safe, I also think that the most exciting restaurants end up being the ones where the chefs are cooking food that like really excites them and is the kind of food that they would want to Mm -hmm, be mm -hmm. eating themselves or cooking for their friends or their broader community. And, and those are the places that end up staying with me. I think of bar Chelu in Pasadena, which was, yeah, like the freshest energy in that dining area and sometime and, and his just, you know, there, it's kind of hard to define it. It takes some cues from, Spanish cooking and Italian cooking and French cooking, but it's ingredients that you wouldn't necessarily think to put together on a plate Mm-mm. that work really well. And he's got kind of the layered effect of textures going on. I mean, that um, fish dish with the stripes. I love the, that fish dish. Pots. Yeah. 
I never, I never <laughs> yeah. thought I'd be so excited about a, a new take on a fish dish, and then it has the the crunchy texture underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the the rice that he yes. caramelizes in corn juice. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And then and then poltergeist. You took the words out of my mouth. And yeah. Echo, yeah, in Echo Park, and I think poltergeist speaks to both things that we're touching base on. We're touching, yeah, we're touching base on because. First of all, it's just the weirdest, craziest food. And when it really works, like his Thai Caesar salad with all these super bright flavors yeah. and and kind of the the deconstructed textures and the really super herbal dressing that he came up with. You know, it's great. And I love seeing the dining room consistently full. And that's a restaurant that was conceived in an arcade space, right? Yeah, and while it's not the first time that a restaurant has been in res- residence at Button Mash, I also feel like this is the most successful because it's oh, a yeah. weird environment for a restaurant, but it's symbiotic for the owners to to draw a crowd in. And even if the the crowd playing Galaxa or Miss Pac-Man or whatever yeah. in the corner isn't the same one eating his um, Diego's broccoli and beef ravioli. Like the synergy of it is just odd in the best sort of way. And I think very LA in that way, that that's a way that a chef who was – looking to move beyond pop-ups to have a home to make his food to support cooks um, like himself who are who are on have on a path of recovery which mm-hmm. he, has, he has spoken about publicly so I'm not I'm not saying anything out of turn and and finding the right space that fits I I think that that's that's such an excellent example of of creative ways to be moving forward. Yeah, and I think you you touch on this other part of this new type of restaurant that is taking a work life balance or mental health into consideration. You know, the conversations I had this year alone, like a topic in almost every episode of just people either trying to find a new way of doing things or just taking that consideration. How much of that did you see in your own coverage and reporting or talking with people in the industry of just putting emphasis on mental health and and dealing with some of the, you know, substance abuses and type of things that go on in the industry? The forever weird thing about being a restaurant critic is that I am not always having these conversations with chefs Mm -hmm. and industry professionals that you're having because I'm trying to keep up a little bit of that church and state and it's tricky, right? And it's been tricky because, um, because I, I do want to support people in my work, in my reviewing, in list making, you know, however I'm getting information to people that not only, discusses excellence 
or, you know, or the opposite. But I like to focus on on excellence in my work because there's a lot of it in Los Angeles. Yeah. And and yet I want to make sure that the people I'm writing about, you know, are fundamentally good people. I worked in restaurants for a decade. Mm. It's a stressful environment. So I I don't imagine scenarios where people who lead kitchens never lose their tempers. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, I I hope that that doesn't happen. I hope that 100% of the time people are treated with a sense of respect and fundamental kindness, but kitchens are pressure cookers and I'm, I'm not defending anyone's uh, bad behavior ever. I'm just saying that um, it is part of the atmosphere and it takes extraordinary leaders to guide their cooks with grace and patience Mm. under extraordinary circumstances. Right. So, so I, that's very much a case by case basis. And I listen to my other colleagues Mm -hmm. um, on the LA times food team who do have more interactions with chefs. Sure. But on this subject, you know, certainly I think about kin in Koreatown and how mm-hmm. Chef Key wrote openly in his Instagram post announcing that they were closing the restaurant, that the circumstances in which they were operating were detrimental to his mental health. And you would have that, never seen that years ago. You would ago. never seen it. Never yeah. seen that. Yeah. Ever. Mm-mm. And, yeah. and I think also how much of the community, again, you can just see very publicly not behind the scenes conversations, even in the comments on that, that post are other industry professionals who are rushing to say, I'm sorry, you're going through this. Yes. A variation of us all going through this. Bravo to you for having the courage to step away and do something else for a while. And I hope that he comes back to running his own restaurant because I love thought, his food. Love his food. Thought Kin was in a lot of ways and it's and it's on its tiny model and it's short, creative, season very seasonal, modern Korean tasting menu. Uh, uh, a glimpse into where we're headed with fine dining in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, it was sad to see Kin close, and there was a ton of closings this year. Um, you know, Animal, this week, Ace Downtown LA announced it was closing, which not crazy specifically a restaurant, but obviously like an iconic spot for any of us uh, who were going out in the last decade. Um, you know, what does it feel to say goodbye to some of these places that, I don't want to say we took for granted, but we're just like, oh... It's just going to be there, which I know you can never really ever fully assume in the restaurant industry. But some of these places, I was like, I never thought you would close. Yeah, I hate it. I I mean, <laughs> I, I feel very I mean, I'm deeply invested in this mm-hmm. um, in this culture. Right. So I never want to see places closing. There was there were a lot of upsetting closures that. You know, of restaurants on the 101 that I had to take off. Woodspoon downtown mm-hmm. broke my heart. I love that place. 
Hotville Chicken closed this time last year, right after last yeah. year's 101 list yeah. came out. Um, and I love that that during the the few years where hot chicken, Nashville style hot chicken was, you know, part of the rage in Los Angeles that that there was a member of the family that really introduced the public to that dish, mm-hmm. making making that a variation on that secret recipe in Los Angeles. So I was bummed about that. Even, you know, Calcita and Bar Maruno, which both of which I really liked um, in their own ways. Yeah. Was, I mean, there was a lot was of weird. like new spots that came in and came out yeah. quickly, which doesn't, it's different than maybe the the poltergeist or the you know the quarter sheets like the little the ones that are trying things a little differently. I think the more traditional spots that came in and just had to close were some of the saddest stuff because you know it's just yeah like no, nickel diner yeah nickel diner tough. there's almost like no runway anymore. You got to yeah. just be hitting from the start. Um, before we go to break and listen, we're talking a lot about opens and closing and mental health, and, and I think those are like a lot of the big stories. Looking back on the year, was there any other story or any other thing that that you really loved that really spoke to you that represented 2023? Ooh, that's kind of a hard question. <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah, the there's always. You know, I guess I guess I um, guess what I want to say about that is particularly since the pandemic, I stopped thinking about. Los Angeles dining culture in terms of trends. You know, mm. I mean, we can we can talk about how there was just a lot of Italian American cooking mm-hmm. that opened this year, right? And mm-hmm. and and again, I think that that speaks to feel good, the sense of feel good dining that people want in a hard time, and whether that's a very kind of fancy and throwback like um la dolce vita in Mm -hmm. beverly hills or donna's in echo park which has been slammed from the moment it opened like four months ago and you can never make a reservation you know it's always funny these cycles i i think and it's part of the reason why i don't invest in much in trends anymore i'm always looking for individuals, right? I want to see mm-hmm. what what people have the courage to come up with that that really reflects who they are as cooks and yeah. how and however that inter- that interprets. Well, I love it. And that's a, a good cliffhanger before we go to break <sighs> and talk about the 101 list. Uh and uh, who was on it and, and how they made the cut. We have a song from the archives uh, here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. She's got a lot for us She can't go home too quick Wolf's hungry, he hasn't eaten all day Follow her, she's 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're sitting down with Bill Addison, restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. And, you know, the 101 is out. Everyone has thumbed through it and shared their <laughs> thoughts and things like that. And before yep. we get into into the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, um, what was the story you and the editorial team wanted to tell with this year's list? It's the same story that I want to tell every year, honestly. And that is both a compendium of excellence, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also as broad as possible a narrative about what it means to dine in Los Angeles right now. And because of that, it's always important for me to try and bring fresh energy into the list. So every, every year for the past few years, there's usually about 25% new names Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that 
might be uh, returning names, say Dear John's and Culver City, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. has been on the precipice of closing for the last year it, or so. It's so and good. Now, Every yeah, six months, so they're yeah. like, oh, you can still get a martini. Don't worry. We're still here. Yes, exactly. And now it's like five years. You don't have to think about this or talk about <laughs> it for five years. We've got our lease. We figured it out. Yeah, and I'm yeah, so yeah. happy. And I and I want people to enjoy it and, and eat there. So, you know, I think I think also it's sometimes important when I am writing the introduction to the 101 and I that's the thing that I save for the very last minute. Mm. I write everything else. And then yeah, so I can see that the logic might be you know, come up with a a thief come up with a thesis first sure. and then and right. then write to the thesis yeah, but yeah, mine yeah. is more like eat 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 right 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 what is your conclusion here and you know so i i wrote about how i wanted to acknowledge that it's been a difficult year in los angeles about how the dual strikes affected angelinos mm-hmm. the fact that we're in a second terrible and very polarizing war right now. And, Mm -hmm. and that I guess the story that I don't want to tell or the story that I try to tell is a more complicated story. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Because communities on top of communities on top of communities, as we are in Los Angeles is complex and and I don't think that we should be falling back on tropes about how, you know, food just brings people together. No. I don't, people no. can tear people apart too. And, and so it was important for me when I was thinking about this list or what I put together to just kind of remind readers that, that restaurants of course are places to celebrate in and escape to and and learn more about ourselves and certainly more learn more about others as well. Oh yeah, I mean avatars for people and culture and you know food can be very political and and it I is think political, yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, I, let's just make it a statement. <laughs> even when yeah, even when people don't want it to be, I'm it, sorry. It is political. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing. Tough year still a tough year, uh, everything going on, yet you open it up with saying Los Angeles is a miraculous place to eat. Mm. Knowing that that's where you wound up after all of your research and putting everything together, how did you wind up with that statement and that that word? Because miraculous is not used very much these days. Yeah, I think I spend months on this project, you know. <laughs> um, it starts in July or August, taking inventory of the restaurants on the list that have closed, the mm-hmm. restaurants on the list that I'm kind of sure I'm ready to perhaps shuttle along and to start thinking about the year so far and all the eating that mm. I need to do ahead. <laughs> and... I mean, I I don't say this tritely, but 
at the end of this project where, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what goes on the hall of fame list that we put on yeah. the every year now and, and places that I love to drink and how that's part of the culture. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I'm, I'm flipping through all the, the incredible, like the, the Laotian restaurant, the, the, that opened in Westminster that I loved um, or the cooking, the cooking from Laos to be specific. And mm-hmm. um, it's called Knox kitchen and it's great. And everyone should check it out. Um, and looking for another Brazilian restaurant to have on the list in the absence of Woodspoon and just dozens and dozens of decisions and hundreds of meals. And when I think about it, when I think about how against all the obstacles, against food costs and labor difficulties and long hours and consistency, so many people put out incredible food at every level in Los Angeles that it is kind of a miracle. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that spread of that you could get dumplings, some of the best dumplings in the SGV to one of the best tasting menus in the world at Providence, say. Yep. How do you square that when you start ranking them? Because I remember chatting that the year that you came back from the pandemic or around the time, it wasn't ranked. And then chefs were like, no, you need to rank us. Like, we, <laughs> we, we, we want it. Like, we appreciate what you're trying to do, but like, we need to know who's one, who's 53, who's 67. Um, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I know. I'm sure I said that last year as well. Um, but what goes into that matrix? Like, how do you create a baseline when everything is so diverse from price point to cuisine uh, to story to everything? A lot of it is. I want to, I wish I had some scientific approach for you. A lot of it is more intuitive. First of all, I'm very clear that even though in the top 10, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of fancy dining um, because by the nature of fancy dining, if you're going to succeed, if you're going to stay in the game, you better be extraordinary and so it's important for me to honor those restaurants that are doing extraordinary things but then you have something like holbosch which is extraordinary for being yeah for being a counter dining restaurant in uh in the mercado la paloma and historic south central and you know that place is is just as special to me in its own way as as Ennaka or um, Cato. or an Alde Cato, of course. Yeah. Um, and so I want to make sure I honor that. I feel like you know, Moose does such a beautiful illustration. We're talking about Moose Craft Barbecue um, and doing my top barbecue Mendez's. in the city. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad we agree on that. Barbecue yeah. is always a subject to fight on. I'm a Southerner, so I've been fighting about barbecue for the 22 years I've been writing about food, basically. Yeah. And, but I, you know, and what I love to the point that, that 
is kind of running through this conversation is that Andrew Munoz picked up technique that he directly credits to the Texas traditions, the Southern, the, sorry, the central California, Texas traditions. And, but they adapt it to their taste, to LA taste, to, to their East Los Angeles roots. And, Mm -hmm. and it, Mm -hmm. it's, again, it's, it's just this incredible expression of what our culture is married with the fact that it's just damn good barbecue. Yeah. I mean, that's, I take that barbecue anywhere. I mean, if that that got (laughs) served up to me in Texas, I think that's one of the things that I see about LA and on this list is that those who are at the top of their game of what they do is that if I, and a lot of times it is stuff coming that's transported from other cities or countries or things like that, is that if I traveled to that city or that country and ate at that restaurant, like, oh my God, I was blown away by this meal, but I just only have to drive. Well, sometimes it's across town or it's to the valley or, (laughs) or things like that, but to get a taste of that. And I, and I look at, I look at like the hall of fame list, right? Like Mio's by Gannett and and uh, other um, like a Cita and Parks Barbecue. Yeah. It's just like if I went to to Thailand or if I went to Mexico or you know I went to Ethiopia, but I don't have to go that far. Um, but I think the other thing that speaks to to the restaurants beyond the food and things like that is this idea of neighborhood. And I've had this theory for a long time that the restaurants that stay around that that resonate, that I guess now make it to the Hall of Fame, are ultimately neighborhood restaurants. And Mm. I want to know how much of that idea of being a regular and having these regulars and going to neighborhood spots, supporting them the years, factors into, well, let's just pick the Hall of Fame. Because all these places are like on everyone's lit, like some version of it, like, oh, you only have like two or three meals in LA, hit these spots. And you just go through the Hall of Fame and it's like, these are the spots you would go to because they're really ultimately just a neighborhood spot. Yeah, I think you have absolutely said it correctly. I think mm-hmm. that the Hall of Fame list in particular, which I I encourage everyone to flip through because it is a lot of familiar names, but I hope that it just prods you to be like, oh yeah, it's time to go back to Earl's on Crenshaw for a hot dog or it's time for a martini and pot roast at jar um you know Mm. or you know Mm -hmm. at at kareem's the palestinian restaurant in anaheim that is uh one of the restaurants that inspired other restaurants from parts of the arab world to open there and to grow and and engender their own sense of community i i think these places are so important and some of them sure like parks barbecue you know that's a citywide destination that oh yeah there's so much korean barbecue here that we can we all no one's going to agree on all that that's the finest among them but we can all agree that we are going to have a fantastic meal with super high quality meat and and debate these points over over tabletop grilling at parks 
Well, the other thing too is parks is one of the few places where you can also make a reservation in advance. Yes, which is and super, valet parking in Koreatown. Super nice parking two, hill. <laughs> two, two huge assets they have going for them. <laughs> yes, exactly. So listen, there's obviously everything changes every year, and you know the list change and chefs come in and coming out. But one of the things consistent still to these days is your anonymity, and I say that because at ChefCon this year you wore a disguise. Uh, yeah. And so, obviously, if someone really wants to know what you look like and see who's the guy who's making this list and coming out in rabbit restaurants, they can find it. But why Absolutely. in this day and age is that still so important to you? How does that really affect, if not just the list, then like your job itself or the way that you interact with the food community? So, I'll, I'll say honestly, first of all, that that I think about this on a pretty regular basis. So. Mm-hmm. One of these days, I might just show my mug, and I don't think if and when I do that publicly, I'm going to make a big, like, it's not going to be, like, a big reveal with a long essay about why I'm showing my face. <laughs> a tight 3,000 words. Right, on, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think anyone cares. And what I said at ChefsCon, which, which I mean, is I need – that bit of separation mm-hmm. to do my job well because because what I do reaches a lot of people and so I want to do it as fairly as possible and in an ideal world I still want to be having the same meal as someone who has no personal or professional connection to the mm-hmm. chefs walking into that restaurant and I would say, too, that the the reality of this job, of this kind of ever rarer position, mm-hmm. is that when you walk in and you get recognized, sometimes people want to make a big deal about it. And I don't yeah. want a big deal made. You know, and there's I'm not going to mention the name of the restaurant, but there was one in particular that I went to um, in October and it was interesting because my Besha Rodell, who was the restaurant critic at LA Weekly here from 2012 to 2017, and then moved back to Australia where she was born, was visiting. She's one of my closest friends. She took over the job at an alt weekly where I got my start in Atlanta, mm. which pretty much propelled her to her her road to restaurant criticism as well. So we've been close for almost 20 years. And I took her to this restaurant and things were going super well and super smoothly. And then a manager kind of Mm. noticed me. And then the end of the meal is a flurry of like free dishes, dishes I didn't order. And then then they want to comp the meal. And (laughs) I was bummed because I don't, I'm not looking for that kind of treatment. And I understand how confusing it can be for people in the restaurant industry these days, because you've got influencers, mm-hmm. you've got people in mm-hmm. the food space, yes. you yeah. know, including yeah. like, let's say podcasters who I pay and, for my meals, I right. And you pay meal. for your meals. So there you go. Um, and I, I wasn't accusing you of not, but there's so <laughs> many voices in the yes, space now course. that you don't know, like who to kind of butter up. Right. To just like put your best foot forward. But 
my job as a restaurant critic means that my company pays for every meal. And most of the businesses that I go to, even if they're fancy restaurants, fancy restaurants have tight margins. I don't need you to send out your free food to me. Yeah. A billionaire owns my paper. And that doesn't mean that the Los Angeles Times isn't struggling because there's a lot of, there's plenty and that's very public. But it also means that I have the budget to pay for my meals and I want to do that. And it was, yeah. so it was interesting to have Besha there be like, wow, like things have changed for you. It's real. <laughs> you know, and I, cause I used to be much more under the radar and I'm, I'm less so. And that's the only reason that I would show my face. I think plenty of restaurant critics who have been doing this for a long time start to feel like this is ridiculous. So many people recognize me that it's really like the readers who don't, know my face or you know yeah. is is it almost like an unfair thing so so we'll see i don't know how do you how do you feel about that i mean look i i came up in a time when i'd go into back kitchens and there'd be a dozen blurry photos of critics in different disguises <laughs> um right. but listen i um i want to be able to go to a restaurant when i want to eat you know, I want to, and I, and I always try and make a reserva- reservation first. And if not, then I ask in enough time, but I expect to pay for my meal. And listen, it goes back to what I was saying before about these neighborhood spots and being irregular. I only go to like six restaurants these days. <laughs> I, I, I'll try something new, yeah, but sure. with, with the cost of everything and with what I want of an experience, you know, you know, you'll find. Yeah, me and you have young, a family with two small I'm, kids. Like, so, you know, you throw in a, a babysitter and things like that. Yeah. But look, it's you follow me on if you follow me on Instagram, it's no surprise of where I'm eating. I'm eating at like right. Dunsmore. I'm eating yep. at Yangban. I'm eating at Greekman's. Yep. Queen Street yep. or Found Oyster. You know what I mean? Like, and then a handful of spots in the valley. And and every once in a while, I'll, I'll try something new. But it's, I you know I like the Miga Mori. I think that is one of my favorite new spots this year. Um. But I want to go in. I I've want not to gotten s- around to reviewing them yet, but I will. Yeah, you know, but I, hear I want you. to. Right. I, I want to see the people. You know, I love the sordids. You know, and like it's because mm. I know the I know the people, and that's yep. that's part of what I think. Um, a lot of people are looking at now is that like they go out, they know the chef, they know the server, they know the front of house, they know the experience they're going to get. Um, because eating out is swung back to being a luxury, and Absolutely. and it is. Not to make this full circle, but I don't want my favorite spots that I just assume will be open to ever close. Because once they announce that day, I saw it today, uh, Egret Diner is closing. Great. Angry Egret Diner. Yep. That's, gone. that's today. Yep. That was one of the hottest restaurants the last few years. There's no amount of money you can spend once that announcement is made. Once that really difficult announcement is made that we are closing, it is over. We've tried everything. It's too late. And so – you know, it's like I, I, I never want to say I didn't do my support to, to go and be a part of the community at my favorite restaurants, and that's just Absolutely. You, know, you know, that's and, where I am. And yeah, and that's I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you, and and so my job kind of has to balance that, right? Because I want people, particularly in Los Angeles, which is 
a city of neighborhoods. It's hell to get across town. Exactly. At dinner at the dinner hour. And so I hope that people establish those relationships with their restaurants nearby. And I'm not anonymous at, at I live in Echo Park. So you think the people at quarter sheets don't recognize me when I walk in? Sure. Subaki? Of course they do. Um, they, but, but they you're also just know Bill like, the neighborhood to, guy, right? <laughs> but they also know like they don't throw me fee food, you know, and I don't, I don't ask for that. Yes. Um, yeah. But because because I also have a professional obligation, and I'm aware of that, and I just want want that kind of membrane to be respected, and I I know that there's also a way to do the job where where like. You know, the critic is just like a, a part of the community. And um, and then I think I just have a hard time saying the tough things if and when I need to say tough things. I'm yeah. a, kind of a, I'm a, yeah. <laughs> if I know you, you know, if I like you, it would be hard to criticize you in, in print or online. So, yeah, it's just, but that's just my personality. So that's me compensating for my own personality you know what i'm saying yeah but they all can't be winners that's the unfortunate business and and you see some places that i don't know they try and sometimes they're in it for the right reasons sometimes they just they fall short um and i think there's a way to critique it that isn't just uh here's the 12 worst dishes i had this year yeah you know i I think there's a way to be like listen like this is you know, it's this the compliment sandwich. We're like, hey, I enjoyed the drink, but this is not too much. <laughs> yeah, the compliment sandwich is so funny. Like, I I have been wrestling with that structure the entire time I've been writing restaurant reviews because it is so easy to just be like, I like this and this and this. One paragraph. Next paragraph. I don't like this and this and I this. Know, so I know it's like, know. how do you how do you tell a story? How do you, you know? And and there are ways to do that. And yeah. and you I put out you a know, list with 101 restaurants on it, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's one way to uh, do it. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for the time. I had uh, even more questions, but we'll save it for another time. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much. If people want to check out the list or um, see what else you're covering, where can they go? How can they follow along uh, with what the LA Times is reporting on for food? Um, it's latimes.com uh, forward slash food. Um, I will just make the plug and say that I know right now, just from Googling the other day, that it costs exactly $1 to subscribe to the Los Angeles Times online for six months. Hmm. And um, and so for people who don't like that it's behind a paywall, consider, consider it a donation, a $1 donation to all the journalists that bring this kind of project together. Yeah. Um, oh, look, it's the holidays. Gift it to yourself and some loved ones and things like that. Uh, well, Bill, thank you so much. Uh, we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on HRN.
is gone to see Leave your lonely here With me Welcome back. We have uh, Nadia Sirota live in studio. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to see us fresh off the plane. Yes, I'm very fresh off the plane. Very fresh off the plane. But you look, you look great. Soundcheck sounded awesome. Um, first off, I saw you at Symphony Space and I was just like pretty floored. Um, you're wonderful. I'm really excited that you're here. Thank you. Um, you're incredibly talented. Um, one of the things that, you know, when reading about you that kind of comes up time and time again is collaboration. Um, I think that, like, uh, you know, a lot of bands that we tend to have on here, like, they're bands, they kind of do stuff. But I think in, in your world, collaboration is a big thing. Um, you know, how do you define it in your world? And, then you know, what do you look for in, in a partner or partners when you're starting to collaborate? Um, I think probably collaboration is a little bit the secret driving force behind my being a musician in general like it's the, the coolest thing in the world about being a musician is you get to meet all these people and not just meet them sort of work within the context of their brain somehow which is really crazy um so the thing that i do which is play the viola like has this hundreds of years old tradition and the strange the strange thing that's like a little bit different about that from say being in a band is that i i always work with a composer i'm not writing music so i need to have a composer whether that's you know brahms or nico muley um the idea is that i'm sort of trying to figure out what somebody else's idea is what's good about it and then be the translator for that um, person to an audience in real time, which is really a complicated process. Like mm -hmm. when you're reading a book, there is no performer between you and the author. The author writes it and you sort of perform it to your head, to yourself. When you're listening to an album of music by a band, they're performing, but they also created it. And it's, there's just like one extra special, very strange step in like classical music. That's not always in other types of music. Although Beyonce, people write her songs all the time, then she performs them, and then there's a producer, and that's a whole other complicated uh, situation. But I think with her, there's like one way that that is going to end. And even when you see it live, there's like, I mean, maybe there might be like an 
some extra measures for like live breakdown dance routines, but it's really you know crazy in love is going to be crazy in love unless it's like a revamp, but it's like a very specific thing. Um, when you're reinterpreting, you know, some of the masters, like you said, I mean, it's so open to interpretation, probably on any given night. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it totally is. But um, going back to your initial sort of collaborator question, like what I have found is that if I meet somebody who says that he or she is a composer, um, and also that person seems awesome and has tons of great things to say and is fun to hang out with eight times out of 10, like their music is also really interesting to me. Mm. Um, and it really sort of follows that, you know, people who are good at expressing themselves are good at expressing themselves in a ton of different ways. There's also tons of introverted composer people. Um, and that's also a fascinating different thing. It doesn't mean that they're not interesting to hang out with. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. Um, but yeah, for me, music is just, um, a series of like projects one after another. And if I can possibly grab people that I like to hang out with and make stuff with them such that we get to travel around the world and play that stuff and then also eat and drink in those places in the world that's a very lovely life and and part of sort of what I'm pursuing I think I mean I think you could tell that at the symphony space performance like that's what was going on was like a bunch of friends who filled a bunch of different roles were on stage together doing something and it was very much it was the first time that I was like I wonder what like a classical uh, music performance after party is like when I was watching you on stage. There's, I mean, we we have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, but it was like the first time I saw. I was like, oh, these are friends who are kind of existing in a sphere that you know maybe is not as immediate to like you know like an arcade fire or something like that, but very much like a thriving and beautiful community of of people who are very interdependent on each other. Yeah, and I think actually that's a little bit of a lovely thing about this generation. Like my dad is also a composer, mm. um, and his generation when he was writing music in the seventies and eighties, there was this kind of gross backstabby environment from composer to composer and there were people that were writing like there, there was like philip glass who was writing minimalist music and then there were people who were writing really intense like high modernist music that was sort of very craggy and very math based um and the math based people thought that the minimal people were like dumb and affected <laughs> and the minimal people thought the math people were like writing math and not not anything with heart and it just got really gross and really really antagonistic for a while um and even so, there was like a lot of sort of posturing and pushing each other away and trying to feeling like there was like a limited number of possibilities for composers. And that, so that's the kind of new music environment that I actually grew up in. Mm. And I think a lot of people did that are like in their 30s or whatever. Um, and I think that has sort of given way to this very supportive community of people who are just sort of like, let's all make as good stuff as we can and try to help each other out. Because, you know, this generation, to, to paraphrase um, Alex Ross, has been no, known that classical music is dead since before we were born, right? <laughs> so that's not interesting. It's right. like more interesting to figure out um, who is making good stuff and like how to communicate that stuff to a larger audience. And uh, that's like what I do with my life all across the board, whether it's radio or, or playing viola. And when you meet someone, um, a composer, do you ask them to maybe commission something for you specifically? Do you ask to see like what they're kind of hiding or like how, you know, or how does it kind of work when you, when you find someone who you think is rather you want to hang out with and play music with? I say, how can I listen to your music? And then hopefully I try to listen to their music. Um, sometimes if it's three in the morning and I've had enough to drink, I'll just ask them to to write me a piece. Oh. Um, and then like, actually that's great. Cause they'll say yes. Cause it's three in the morning and they've also had a lot to drink. Yeah. And then you just have to follow up with an email. You yeah. have to follow up and make sure they do it. They're like, is it like a three or t- three or two AM timestamp? Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, 
no, no, no. The email is the next day. Oh, okay. Because the thing is, you're not a drunk if you do the things that you say you're going to do when you are drunk. I have lived my entire life that way. This is very important. Yeah. Um, so this is how the classical music world works. Yeah. It's very uh, key. Um, which key is it in? Oh. <laughs> um, but so, uh, and then from that from that process of collaboration, I mean, where do you where do you sit in it? I mean, and obviously you have such a wide range of collaborators. Are some like, okay, leave me alone. I'm going to come back. I'm going to give you something. Or I want you in the room because here's like a melody and I, you know, I'll explain like, you know, what do you prefer or what is, or is there any type of norm? Yeah, that's the, that's kind of the coolest thing about working with all these different people is that there are some people who it's very much like they go off into the woods and they agonize over every single little detail and they give me back a score that is basically done. Um, and then it's my job to sort of interpret that and maybe I change three little tiny things, but that's, that's the process. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are, more interested in sort of the types of things that I might come up with. So, for example, when I worked with um, Valger Sigerson or Ben Frost, like they'll have written some kind of expansive track that I'll then listen to in headphones and improvise like 14 passes over. Then they'll take all that material, pull out the stuff that they like, then we'll re-notate that, and then that'll become my part in the future. So it's it's kind of a cool thing where I am giving some artistic input, but um, at the end of the day, it's sort of their like in the box assembly that is the thing that creates the piece. Um, there are people who I've just played around a bunch of times, and they're inspired by that, and then they'll come back with something. There hmm. are people who write something, but then the second we get in a room together, we change a whole bunch of stuff. Um, either to make it more idiomatic or to make it land more in the way that they were thinking. Because here's the thing. The viola is actually like a um, 17th century piece of technology. <laughs> and the way that it's put together is super quirky and weird. And actually, like, to be a composer, you're not born with all of this innate knowledge of, like, where the break in a clarinet is and how to play the trombone and what how to play the viola and all of this stuff about, like, how the instrument actually is put together and how to write idiomatically for it is learned. Um, so the best thing you can do as a young person who wants to write for people is just talk to them and, ex and like have them show you what they can do and experiment with the instrument and figure it out. Because I think some, you know, there there is music that just exists as vibration of sound in space as like an ideal, and that's really cool. Um, and getting that onto this piece of technology from the 17th century is a really complicated process. But I mean, there's something to be said about not understanding the medium and pushing it in ways because you're not restrained by, you know, the, well, it's like, well, we can't actually do that on the instrument. It's like, yeah, but what if you could? And that kind of pushes it forward. Definitely. But there's always, there's always you know, the line there, right? Where, where I want to make sure that if you're writing something that's meant to sound easy and free and whatever, and it's like the hardest thing in the world, that's that's an incongruous like mm. quality, right? So um, it's, it's about basically, I mean, this is what I find the most interesting about working with composers, actually, is just trying to figure out where they're coming from, where that idea is coming from, what that idea needs to be and if they're pushing me to do something I've never done before I'm, I'm and it and it works and it makes the music make sense and it's something that I can really embody that's like the most exciting moment ever and if they're if they're doing something that's accidentally really really impossible it's great to figure out a way to make that not true okay let's hear something cool what are you gonna play first um the first thing I'm gonna play is a piece called etude three this is actually talks this is perfect segue you're brilliant at making segues <laughs> um uh, I went to Juilliard from 2000, 2000 to 2006 um and while I was there uh one of my composery colleagues was a guy called Nico Muley who's now doing great he uh, wrote an opera for the Metropolitan Opera and has done a bunch of fancy we, things we adore him yeah he's he's yeah. the best so he's one of my closest friends um and when we were both in college, 
he wanted to figure out how to write for strings and we had a really great sort of relationship about that and one of the things that happened early on is I said your music is really hard to play on the viola in these really specific ways and he said well is it is it harder than Paganini and I said no he was like great why don't we figure out how to make you learn how to do that stuff um so ever since then we've been doing a series of etudes little studies for viola and electronics um, and I'm going to play the third of them. It's actually the fourth one because there's one and one A, and then there's two, and this is three. So it's etude number three, which is actually the fourth etude that he's written. Great. Okay. Let's do it. Thank you. 
so it's not often that we have a fellow radio host on the show. So you do the show, Meet the Composer. Um, what is, or how did that come about? What is the, uh, the uh, idea behind the show? Um, the idea behind the show is that I find composers to be some of the most fascinating people that I know. Um, and also, I think your average human being thinks about composers never. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like a trying to find a way into people's music via who they are as human beings, which mm. if you think about pop music, like what do you know about Lady Gaga before? I mean, even before you hear her music, you know something of her. Um, and it's very strange that in classical music, we don't even think about that. So um, not to sort of hype up the the myth of these people, but it's cool to sort of meet them and figure out that they're human beings. Um, and from my perspective, if you're somebody who has not listened to a ton of classical music in your life, it makes way more sense to start listening to classical music via someone of your generation. There's going to be some kind of like vernacular thing to grab onto there. Um, because we all listen to, you know, this, we watch the same movies and watched MTV and like all this stuff. There's like something in the music of our time that is going to be something you can grasp onto. Um, so it's like, I'm trying to create some sort of gateway vehicle for new classical music listeners. Uh, at the end of like an episode, um, like what do you feel that you, or what would you like to accomplish? I want somebody to be like, holy shit or holy whatever. I don't, I don't know how, how much I can talk uh, uh, in bad words on the show. You can, it's, it's uh, internet radio. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want people to want to hear more of this music. Um, and in fact, after every show, which is like sort of an hour long documentary style feature with a lot of sound, like a ton of sound design. The idea is that as, as the interview sort of happens, we weave in elements that we're talking about. So it's music they're listening to when they were kids, music, they hate what their teacher was writing, you know, <laughs> all this other stuff. Um, so by the time you're listening to music by these people, you've heard a little bit about the creative process, which is always, I mean, everyone deals with that. It's amazing. Um, and uh, you want to hear more. So we do like an hour long feature on every uh, composer. And then we do a bonus track because it's sort of talk format. It's it's a radio show about music designed to go on talk radio formats. So we can't actually play more than like three or four minutes out of music out in the clear. So we give a bonus track, which is just like basically pure music with a tiny little bit of production. Oh, that's that's pretty great. Um, is there any one particular episode that you feel for that's a good gateway in for people who think about composers never? Sure. Uh, if you just heard this show and you just heard that piece I played, um, the episode 10 is about Nico Muley. Oh, perfect. Um, so that would be a really nice place to start. Um, what is it about? I mean, he's really kind of jumped also to the fray as well. I mean, I think you, you two kind of exist in a similar space where you stepped out from like the usual place that composer slash uh, uh, musician hold in that world. What do you think it is about your two approach that has allowed you to to do that? Um, I'm not sure I can speak for... M That's the really strange thing I was about to say. I'm not sure I can speak for me, but I would say for Nico, which is a very <laughs> strange thing to say. Um, but, you know, as somebody who can sort of observe him, he is by far one of the most hardworking, energetic, and interesting people I've ever met. Um, mm. Obviously, we're close friends, so that's I'm, I'm super biased and completely in the tank. Um, but it's cool to see somebody work really, really, really hard um, and also have an incredible amount of innate talent. And I feel like that's something that people respond really well to. Plus, he's completely one of the funniest people I've ever met. Mm. Um, I think uh, also he's just a very gifted collaborator. And when it comes to sort of the music world, it really, I mean, I, I talk about this in classical music, but I think across the board, it's really about collaboration and about sort of working with all these amazing musicians. And if you're somebody who's just gifted at finding people and connecting with them, I think it's you're going to have a slightly easier way through. Um, cool. Can we hear another song? Sure. Um, 
Uh, so this next piece is actually by um, another longtime collaborator, Valgir Sigerson. Valgir um, got his sort of uh, probably the the he's most well known for his work with Bjork. So he did he worked on the Medulla album, um, and uh, is just a very interesting composer and producer. Um, and he was the first person who, for me really took an electronic track and made it breathe and sound human. I sort of, when I was a kid, every time I heard, you know, MIDI or synthesizers or stuff, like I, it, it seemed like it had this very um, mechanical edge to it. Uh, and obviously it did. Um, and now there's like something wonderful about that too. And I found beauty in it. But when I was younger, it really turned me off because I think something beautiful about, um, you know, playing an instrument like the viola is it doesn't, you know, I, I don't really make the exact same sound two times in a row. It's it's a human weird instrument. Um, and Valgir can add that type of an element to um, electronic music in a way that I find completely bonkers beautiful. Um, so we worked together on a dance piece a couple years ago called The Architecture of Loss. Uh, and I'm going to play a track from that, which is called The Crumbling. Awesome. Uh, live on Snacky Dunes. Thank you. 
every uh, instrument tends to have a story. Do you have a good one on how you got your viola or where it came from? Um, I was borrowing a viola um, that was on loan. Uh, so basically, this is a really crazy profession because um, these instruments basically cost as much as cars and in some case as much as like way more than cars <laughs> um so sometimes you have to sort of to have a fancy instrument you need a fancy person to own it like you can there can be you know a two million dollar violin that a fancy person owns because it's a good investment and then they lend it to a, an actual musician um which is a little bit of a complicated situation but anyway so i had a, a slightly fancy thing on loan from a fancy person um and then i mean is there a terror all the time I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, okay, you know? fair enough. <laughs> um, but I had a fancy thing on loan for a fancy person, and then the stock market didn't do well, and the fancy person wanted to uh, not have that money tied up in one thing, took it away, uh, and I had seven months to find an instrument, which is like a slightly terrifying thing. Um, and so the, there's two things that happen with instruments. There's like antique value, and then there's sort of musical instrument value. And if you buy an old instrument, there's just the antique value can get through the roof. There are amazing modern um, makers that, uh, I mean, it's an incredibly old, you're, you're using entirely hand tools. There's like, it's just a really amazing craft. And this is an a instrument made in 2002 by a wonderful modern maker um, out of Ann Arbor, Michigan called Greg Alf. Okay. Uh, so it's, you know, cheaper because it is brand new, but it's also super awesome and I love it and it makes me very happy. Um, how many years do you feel like it took for before it like really opened up? I mean, it's, it continues to open up. It, it literally sounds better every day, which is super cool. That's awesome. And it, it's sort of forming to the way that I play it, and it's kind of evolving. And um, it's just a, it's a cool, it's like a really close friend of mine. I mean, no one can see us, but we're like all lovingly staring <laughs> at your video. We're just like, keep like, oh, oh does it know we're talking about it? <laughs> it totally knows. Yeah. It totally knows. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about is that, you know, I, th I think Akami said it's like, um, you know, classical music was dead before you were born. Um, uh, you know, I, I think with you, with Nico and a lot of the composers you're talking about, especially, and I think Bjork is also a really good um, uh, musician who has brought classical music into her work and obviously Arcade Fire and, you know, so many, you know, strings. I, I'm a sucker for strings, like just have been from like Rachel's growing up and all, all those bands, you know. What type of, you know, kind of advice or what kind of, like, you know, encouragement do you give to young kids when they're trying to, like, kind of pick a path from, like, you know, pop or rock and to be like, no, classical, that's where you want to, that's that's where the, the goodness is. Yeah, well, one of the other things that I do that takes up a large portion of my life is I'm in a, a group called Y Music, which mm -hmm. is a chamber sextet, um, and we... Um, have sort of a double life. On one hand, we work with composers and we make, make them write us music. That is the same kind of thing where we're writing, we're playing chamber music for classically people. Um, but we also serve as a kind of ready-made collaborative unit for bands and songwriters. And so through that, um, we just came off a tour with Jose Gonzalez. We've worked a lot with uh, like Shara Warden um, and uh, Annie Clark and all sorts of cool people. Um, and one of the things that's been really kind of cool about that process actually has been then teasing all these songwriters, teasing sort of classical concert music out of them. So for Annie Clark, for example, St. Vincent, um, we, you know, worked with her a few times and then she decided she wanted to make a, uh, or we like commissioned her to write us a piece of chamber music. Um, and the process for that was she gave Rob Moose, our, um, violinist and guitar player, like 64 little tracks that she had made in logic and it was like not quite a piece yet. And so we worked really, int uh, really intensely with her 
to sort of take all of these little ideas and, and form it into a piece of chamber music. And now that's like one of our most popular pieces that we play of concert music, which is really cool. I think that music people, people that are thinking creatively about music, um, tend to be some of the most open-minded people that I know. And so, you know, just because you are <clears throat> working in sort of like a songwriting medium doesn't mean you're not going to be excited about writing chamber music. Right. So actually this group came together because um, most of us were playing with Sufjan Stevens at a certain point and, um, and the national and, and doing all this stuff where people kept on employing orchestral instruments. Um, and then those people, so Sufjan and Bryce Desner from the national, all those people have ended up writing us a bunch of concert music as well. Um, and I just think it's a super interesting time for, for creative people on all sort of sides of that little um, classical music, non-classical music fence. Awesome. Um, and then last question is, any projects on the horizon that we should be uh, aware of or keeping our ears open for performances, tours? Yeah. Um, uh, Why Music's going back on the road with Ben Folds uh, in a couple weeks, which will be fun, and it's always a, a raucous good time. Um, but I love a good Ben Folds concert, right? Like he's so fun. He's I know. Amazing. I mean, I feel like it's an eye roll, but like it's definitely like it's going to be like it's a good time. It's such a good time. He's a really great person, and he is the most um, present on stage of like almost anyone I've ever worked. And the with. dude can play. He can super play yeah. and he can, and he makes up songs like every show. So you never really know what's going to happen. It's very cool. Um, and then I'm releasing two albums this fall, which is crazy. Why not? Yeah, yeah. totally. Whatever. <laughs> um, one of them is a viola concerto by Nico Muley, uh, that, uh, we recorded with the Detroit symphony. Um, and that'll be really cool. The other one is this piece, Tessalatum, by the Irish composer Donica Dennehy, um, which is for multi-tracked viola and viola da gamba. Viola da gamba is like an even ancienter <laughs> instrument, which is like a fretted cello that has no end pin. Um, and Donica does this thing where he likes to toggle back and forth between equal temperament, which is like how we tune a piano. And just intonation, which um, if you can think about like church bells, when you hear church bells, it's an incredibly complex sound with all these crazy overtones. Um, so he goes back and forth between tuning equal temperament and then tuning to the overtone series. Um, so it's this super crazy, rich, multi-tracked thing with four violas and 11 vi bass viola de gambas. And because the gamba is like a bright instrument, the lowest sounds are super bright and the highest sounds, which are the viola, are super, super dark. And you're toggling between just intonation and um, and uh, equal temperament, and it is just the coolest piece I've ever heard. It's so awesome. It's like a 38 minute long piece. So that's that's the other record. Okay. And uh, people want to find you, learn more about you, listen to your radio show. Uh, where can they find you? Where can they go? NadiaSarota.com. Bang. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, big thank to our food guest today. Uh, shout out to Mom, Dad, Berlin. Darren, Anna, um, what are you going to take us out with? Uh, this is a piece by Marcos Balter, um, who is a Brazilian New Yorkan composer. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it's called Oot, and it's acoustic. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.